Hi folks, welcome to the Wellbus Nation podcast. In this episode, we'll be turning our attention to one of Britain's most iconic fighter planes from the Second World War, the Spitfire, as we speak with co-director David Fairhead about his new film documentary on the subject, which charts the story of the Spitfire from its creation the whole way through the Second World War, and we look at all those individuals that flew this remarkable plane. David, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of the RAF. Uh, the Spitfire is at the very heart of our British aviation heritage. What do you think it is about this wartime aircraft that makes it so iconic and manages to capture the imagination of each generation to this day? It's, it's a very interesting question because it, it, it's, I think the aircraft appeals to people on a number of different levels. Um, uh, you know, obviously, it, it is, it's beautiful. Um, and everything about it looks right. Uh, you know, the elliptical wing is just so distinctive. Uh, the sound of its Merlin engine is so distinctive. Um, and, and, and so people wax lyrical about the beauty of it. But underneath that, you have to remember what it was made for. And it was a, it was a machine of war. And, and it was a very good machine of war. And so there's another reason for remembering it, because what it achieved with the other aircraft of the era, you know, the Hurricane, the Mustang, et cetera, et cetera, was it, it, was able, it allowed us to defeat the, the, you know, probably the greatest existential threat that com- the country's ever faced. And so it's, it's also our saviour. Um, and, and unlike the other aircraft, it's, it's, it's been remembered, which is, of course, you know, there's always this irony that people talk about, oh, the Hurricane shot down more airplanes. Well, it only shot down more airplanes in the Battle of Britain. Um, and after that, the Hurricane was basically obsolete. Um, whereas the Spitfire moved on, so it, the, the Spitfire lived right through the war, whereas the Hurricane died died off, um, and and it was developed and it was successfully developed, um, and you know unlike the Messerschmitt 109, for instance, which yes got bigger engines and all the rest of it, but they became more and more difficult to fly. The Spitfire actually got better to fly; it had more power. The airframe was developed, so um, the, the Spitfire stayed with us, and. And then what's more, I had a film made about it called First of the Few. And I think that's the thing probably that really cemented it. Um, the Hurricane didn't have a film make, made about it. The Mustang didn't, but the Spitfire did. And so that film, I think, cemented its relationship perhaps with the, uh, with, with, with the British people and people around the world because it's, it's a very popular airplane elsewhere, um, especially in Australia, you know, Canada, New Zealand, but also the US. Um, so... It, 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 I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's remembered for multiple reasons, and, and that's what makes it such an icon. You already touched on that, it's uh, versatility and adaptability. Um, what sort of numbers were produced during the war, and how many variants were made of this adaptable aircraft? Um, well, 22,000 of them were built during the war, um, uh, and it's the only Allied fighter to be in production from before the war to after the war. Um, and so that's quite distinctive as well, uh, and it shows again how adaptable it, it, it was. But of course, by the end of the war, it was. Um, it, 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 I mean, it was it was just a fighter aircraft at the time, and and by the end of the war, it was uh, superseded by the jet jet fighters. So the jet engine you know, was was what really 
sounded the death knell for it. Um, but in terms of, of, of variants and numbers, um, the uh, obviously the, the, the Mark One and then the Mark Two bore the brunt of uh, the early war, and in particular the Battle of Britain, Dunkirk, and the Battle of Britain. And that had, uh, um, you know, as an aircraft, it had its issues. Um, it mostly related to the engine. In fact, funnily enough, because the um, uh, because of negative G uh, created uh, problems with the fuel flow and the carburetors. So it wasn't as effective as the 109 in being able to dive and what have you. But you know that was that was dealt with, um, and that was the, the 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 thing about the way that the Spitfire was adapted. It, it, it there was a there was a, a constant sort of uh, a game of uh, to and fro with with the enemy, where they would produce something, and then we would have to produce something else. So you know the Mark V, which came in, was the first to effectively use cannons, and then that brought the firepower up, the firepower up to matching the um, the, the 109, and then the the Germans brought out the FW-190. So uh, that, in effect, uh, it produced the uh, the reaction to that was the Mark IX with the, 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 the twin double-staged uh, uh, supercharged uh, Merlin engine. I can't remember the number of it. Um, uh, which, which actually became a very, very effective uh, aircraft. In fact, probably to some people, it was certainly the ultimate uh, Merlin engine mark. Um, and then again, uh, later in the war, where speed was becoming more and more of a requirement. Uh, the Griffin engine spits came in. The first one was the Mark 12, uh, but that wasn't particularly successful. But then the Mark 14, because that had an airframe specially designed for to hold the, the Griffin engine and the power of it. And that really was perhaps the ultimate and, and, uh, fighting mark of, of, of Spitfire. I mean, there were numerous versions after that, but that was the key one. So, so your main marks are really Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 5, Mark 9, and then the Mark 14, and then, um, but it did of course go up to the Mark 24, uh, but some of those marks were quite specialised, so um, like Mark 19, we're not entirely sure if it was just produced as a reconnaissance version, but it did, um, the, the surviving Mark 19s, for instance, are all photo reconnaissance versions. And then of course there was the Sea Fire, which is the navalised version, which wasn't quite as successful as, as, as had been hoped for, because um, because Spit was, uh, was it had never been designed to be a carrier aircraft, and there are certain requirements for the, the carrier aircraft have, such as very strong undercarriage, which the Spit just never had. So, in fact, I think I'm right in saying that there were more Spitfires lost to landing accidents than there were to enemy action on uh, uh, Spit. Sorry, Sea Fires lost to landing accidents than there were to enemy action during the war. But it was. Um, it, it, it also it, it could start it, it could carry bombs by the, by the end of the war I think it's it, it's it, the weapon load if you carry it was two or three times that of the original so the development of the Spitfire was just uh, it, uh, really it, it, I think incredible is, is probably a good a good word uh, for it and and also the fact that it was um, when you consider that the original you know, design team leader R J Mitchell died um, not not long after the first flight. So his work had to be carried on by his team, and eventually that was led by Joe Smith, who had been the chief draftsman. So he and the rest of the team were responsible for taking that initial design and developing it right through. So, uh, and in itself, again, that's also incredible that they could they could stretch this this design so far. Out of interest, sort of around the world today, uh, how many Spitfires are there still flying? There are approximately fifty. Um, 50 to 55, I think it is. 
um, uh, which is quite a few. Um, but what's amazing is that uh, when the Battle of Britain film was made in 1968, 67, 68, it was released in 69, they could only get together nine flying Spitfires for that film. Oh, wow. Um, and it made people realise that unless action was taken in a few years' time, there'd be none. And so that film actually kick-started the, uh, the fledgling kind of vintage aviation uh, business, which now I think can be described as a small industry rather than just a business. <laughs> and there are companies that uh, specialise in rebuilding uh, Spitfires. There's, a, there's about three or four in the UK. Uh, there are companies, there's a company down in the Isle of Wight called Airframe Assemblies who remanufacture uh, uh, complete airframes from the original plans. Um, but there's a sensitivity to that because no one wants to think this this is just a brand new Spitfire that's been made. So that's always done as a kind of rebuild from a wreck and bits from the, uh, uh, or, or not necessarily a wreck, maybe from a gate guardian or something like that, or an aircraft that's been in a museum. And as many uh, you know parts from that original are, are used in the new aircraft. And so it, it, it takes on the, 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 uh, the uh, personality, if you like, of the, of the donor aircraft. And that's why there's so many flying again today. That continuity of keeping history alive, essentially. Well, that's right, yes, yes. Um, but some people describe it as a bit like being Trigger's broom. You know, it's got two new handles and four new heads, but it's still the same broom. <laughs> well, let's turn to the film. Um, what was it that inspired you and your team to produce this documentary? And do you have some sort of personal family connection with this aircraft in particular, the RAF? Um, I I've had a lifelong, in, lifelong interest in aviation, and in particular, uh, wartime aviation. Uh, my dad was in the RAF after the war. He, was, he did his national service, uh, but he was never a pilot. But um, his interest in it um, uh, you know, rubbed off on me, and uh, so I've always, always loved uh, airplanes. Um, and uh, I, I guess, you know, it's just the Spitfire is just... It's really up there, you know. Uh, there are other airplanes I like, you know, the Mosquito, for instance. But the Spitfire is the one you always come back to because I, sh I guess, because of its just it, it, its looks and that sound. Um, the inspiration for the film, funnily enough, came from my co-director, Ant Palmer. Um, he was researching another uh, project. Uh, he, he he's a, a documentary. Uh, TV TV documentary uh, director and producer. Uh, I'm I have been a film editor for 30 years uh, and for the last 10 years I've been working in cinema documentaries and Ant and I have been friends for 20 years and uh, but he we met up in the pub one day and, and he said uh, I've got one word to say to you Spitfire I said yes he said do you think that would make a good feature doc and I said yes and uh, and that's where it started um, so like all the best ideas in the pub <laughs> and uh, uh, and we very very quickly realised that uh we couldn't hang around and try and you know, raise money for the project, um, you know, because what drives uh, you know, independent cinema productions, of course, is is you've got to get finance for them. But we realised we couldn't wait for that, and because the veterans were not, you know, they were getting fewer and fewer by the day, and so we um, we, uh, we we contacted some. Uh, cameramen we, we knew and they agreed to work on film on a deferred basis deferred fee basis and we just went out and started filming um, uh, so we, we we gathered interviews um, with uh, you know, Jeffrey Wellham 
Tom Neal, who very sadly has passed away, um, uh, Joy Lofthouse, Mary Ellis, um, a whole host of the surviving um, pilots, uh, because we just had to get them in the can, as we say, um, because without them, we knew we wouldn't have a film. And the other thing is we knew that we didn't want to make just another film about the Spitfire. This, is, this was going to be for the cinema. It's not for DVD. It's not for BBC4 or Channel 5, you know, all of which have their different kind of styles. This is for the cinema, so it had to be cinematic and it had to be big. Um, but, you know, if you want to know how many rivets there are in a Spitfire, you buy a book. Um, the, the, the film is, is a different experience. It's about what it's like to fly these things. And although, of course, we do tell the story of the Spitfire uh, through, through, the, through the film, the, the, the narrative is from the, um, from the veterans themselves. And that, that's, that's what we wanted to do. And, I, and I, I think that's what we've achieved. Obviously, you've sort of touched on that, you know, filmmaking is a long process. Um, when did you first start work on this project? And how long has this documentary been in the making for? Right, well, we, that first meeting at the pub was in 2014. Um, so quite a long time. Uh, we didn't start, we didn't do any filming till the following year, 2015. Uh, but as I say, this is all sort of, uh, you know, funded by ourselves, not through the budget. Um, uh, we, uh, uh, we approached other people to get them on board. So, um, uh, a friend of mine is a chap called Steve Milne and he runs a company called British Film Company. He, he came in and he agreed to try and raise some finance, uh, but you know, this doesn't grow on trees, this stuff. Uh, but anyway, he, he, he started working behind the scenes. And we got some other people involved. Uh, another producer I've worked with, Keith Haviland from Haviland Digital, Mark Stewart from Mark Stewart Productions, Trevor Beatty, uh, the advertising uh, you know, guru, I think it's not too strong a word. And so all these guys came in and uh, wanted to be part of it. Um, or we persuaded them to be part of it. And that's how we started to raise our budget like that. Um, so, uh, so the, the, our first, and then, and then the, the, probably the most key person, I should say, of, of everyone, was John Dibbs, the aviation photographer. Uh, and I, I, I knew of John because my dad buys his calendar every year, but I didn't know he shot moving footage, so I hadn't given a thought to uh, to how we would um, get our air-to-air material that we knew we, we would want. And at one stage, we were even considering using computer graphics and CGI of the aircraft to tell the story. But I, I stumbled across some footage that he had shot of a Mark I Spitfire on the web, and it was just so different from anything else I'd seen. And uh, uh, so I contacted John, and I'd sent him, a, I, I, I'd, by this stage, I'd already cut together a trailer, and I sent him the trailer. And um, he, uh, and I managed to download these clips, so I cut those into the trailer. And I sent it to him, and uh, and he got back to me, and, and he loved it. And you know, he probably gets bombarded with stuff like this twice a day. Um, but he could see that what we were trying to do was different. And so, you know, basically, he said, "I'm in." Uh, so we met him first at uh, uh, in London, probably what year was that? That would have been 2016, I think, beginning of 2016. And uh, he. Um, uh, he he said about right. This is how we should go about doing it. You know, we will get various people involved. He's got lots of connections with the aviation industry, and you know, obviously, it is re- unbelievably expensive to get Spitfires up in the air, three and a half thousand pounds an hour. Um, mm. And we wanted to get three Mark Ones together, so that <laughs> became a challenge in itself. Um, 
but uh, eventually we uh, we arrived uh, one day in September 2016 uh, with uh, uh, standing on Bicester Airfield in Oxfordshire with three Mark ones uh, coming over the horizon towards us, and that was a pretty um, uh, amazing day. Uh, we'd we'd raised we'd raised some budget enough to uh, to get these aircraft there. We had four camera crews. We had a helicopter. Uh, with a camera on it and and Dipsy there and uh, it was fantastic. So that was the that was where we were then able to start making the film look very much like the film we wanted to make. We had this incredible aerial footage. We had our our uh, veterans uh, who, whose uh, stories make the spine of the film. We had some great archive film that we'd managed to track down. Most of which I hope is a little seen. Some of it actually not seen before. Uh, so all these things combined to um, uh, to uh, you know, tell a story, and uh, so you know, production goes on. Um, you know the money ebbs and flows, uh, but uh, we finally completed the edit uh, just at the beginning of this year, and we've been in post production since then and premiere last Monday. Well, turning to the veterans, um, it must have been a very humbling experience to have met so many that flew the Spitfire during the Second World War. Um, again, going back to the film world and obviously the edits, you've got to obviously keep it to a certain length. Are there any stories you can tell us which you weren't unfortunately able to include in the final cut? Gosh, there are dozens and dozens. Uh, we, and we hope to include some of them in the DVD extras. Um, uh, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Um, uh, uh, Yes, I mean, here, here's a for instance, okay, um, Paul Farns, um, he uh, flew with 501 Squadron, which is a Hurricane Squadron, and uh, he was in the Battle of France, in fact, I think he's the last surviving Battle of France uh, pilot, and we wanted to tell that story, but in the end, um, you know, there's only so many stories you can get in the film, but he told us this wonderful um, story, anecdote, about how operating in, in France was just so difficult, because you had no ground control, the radios didn't work very well, um, you know, maps were very poor, and quite often they'd end up getting lost. And so if that was the, the situation, you would, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd land and try and find out where you were. So he described uh, this flight where he was, um, he had a, a, a somebody following him who was actually a senior officer to him, but Paul was a flight sergeant, but he was, he was more experienced. And, uh, and they got lost. And so he decided he would put down. As he came into land in the field, he realized the field was a lot smaller than he expected. But his experience allowed him to put the hurricane down. And then the other, um, the other pilot came in uh, much higher and much faster. Um, and uh, Paul described how he, he knew he wasn't going to make it. He said at the end of the field was a row of trees, you know, poplars or whatever. You know, they, were, you know, like they had in long French roads. And he watched the hurricane, uh, you know, rolling along the ground to just smash through the trees, took both the wings off and the whole thing you know, collapsed in a cloud of dust. And he ran over, uh, fearing the worst. And as he approached the hurricane, his head popped out of the cockpit. And the guy says, do you know where we are, old man? Uh, so fantastic anecdote. Um, but we couldn't get it in. Um, uh, and that's an example of, of the tough choices you have to make where, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're making... Um, narrative decisions, but you're also making decisions because the film can't be three hours long, not for not for theatrical release. But uh, you know, one day maybe we'll release a special edition which has all has all these stories, and we'll see. Well, I hope you do. I look forward to seeing that. Yeah. 
you've already touched on it. One of the aspects um, that I believe, obviously, your documentary covers and is maybe not as widely well known about is the vital work of the female pilots of the Air Transport Auxiliary. Can you tell us a little bit more about their role? Yes. Well, we felt it very, very important that we include uh, the role of women in in, in this film. Um, and obviously, there, there are only a handful of, of these pilots left. So the, the, the two we spoke to were Joy Lofthouse, uh, again, who sadly passed away, and Mary Ellis, who's now 101, and who came to the premiere, by the way, and was standing, uh, and still standing uh, in the drinks afterwards. <laughs> um, uh, yes, they, well, they played a vital role. I mean, the ATA had both male and female pilots. And funnily enough, it's, it's the, the male pilots were more, who were overlooked uh, for once. Um, but yes, the, so they were recruited from uh, women pilots who, who, uh, who generally already had their flying licenses, but not always, because Joy learned to fly uh, with the ATA. Um, their, their task was to move aircraft from factories to airfields generally. Um, and the idea was that they would free up um, RAF pilots to actually do then the war work um, or fighting work. Uh, they flew in all weathers. They didn't have any radios because radios were fitted at the squadrons. Um, they had very limited tuition on each aircraft type. They had a little book called Pilot's Notes, which just basically detailed where the start button was, a bit like a, you know, a very brief handbook you get via car. Uh, where the key instruments was, where the undercarriage was, et cetera, et cetera. And then they were told to go. And and some of these women ended up flying um, uh, four-engine bombers. Uh, but on a given day, they might fly three or four different types. Um, so it was uh, quite an extraordinary job. And, uh, you know, they were very, very daring. Um, because to get, sometimes they were told, right, you must get this aircraft to this location. And they'd have to take off in very, very poor weather. And, you know, a number of them were killed. Uh, uh, so uh, no, it was a it was an amazing opportunity. But we also have in the film uh, a lady who was a WAF plotter at the Level Group headquarters at Oxbridge during the Battle of Britain. In fact, she was there on September the fifteenth when Churchill visited, and so that was uh, that was a great privilege to to interview her. And then another lady as well, whose father was one of the Spitfire um, uh, designers. Uh, in fact, he was. Uh, I can't remember exact uh, role, but his name was Ernest Mansbridge, and he was uh, definitely one of Mitchell's right-hand men. And as a as a child, um, at four and a half years old, she was taken along to Southampton to watch what was then called the fl the first flight of their 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 new aircraft, their new aeroplane. It was called. It wasn't called Spitfire then. And so she was there to watch, to witness the um, the, the first flight of the Spitfire, which which for us as filmmakers was an incredible coup to to meet her and uh, by, by chance and, and get her in the film. So you know, there's a strong um, female uh, element to the, to, to the film and um, you know, we're really proud to be telling their stories. What was Mary Ellis's thoughts of flying the Spitfire? Because obviously she, and kind of how did it compare, I guess, to the other types of wartime aircraft that she flew? Because she flew quite a lot from memory. Yeah, she flew a thousand aircraft uh, and 400 of those were Spitfires. Um, I think, but the thing is, you know, that they, that she, the two aircraft I think she fly, enjoyed flying the most were the Spitfire and the Wellington. I think she enjoyed the challenge of the Wellington, but she enjoyed the sheer joy of the Spitfire. Um, it had a reputation even then. And, uh, you know, so there was a sense, both she and Joy talk about this, this, uh, it was like they'd arrived. They, 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 they'd, uh, 
by being told they were going to fly a Spitfire that day, they knew that they were being trusted as pilots uh, because it wasn't always the easiest aircraft to fly, certainly not taxiing. Well, flying it was, was, was very easy enough, but taxiing and landing were very difficult. Um, because it had that long nose and it had a narrow track undercarriage. So so I, they, they both felt they, that if you told you're flying a Spitfire, you'd arrived. Well, going on to Joy, obviously you had the opportunity to sit down and speak with her uh, before she sadly passed away last year. Um, from your trailer, she certainly seemed to have a few very apt words for describing the Spitfire and her experience of flying it, didn't she? She, she did. But the, the, the people who made the trailer have, have taken it slightly out of context because what she actually says is um, a test pilot once said she was a bitch in the on the, you know, she was a lady in the air but a bitch on the ground. So they've 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 cut that for impact. Um, but uh, yeah, she, no, she um, uh, she uh, I thought that was a lovely uh, turn of phrase. Uh, that, that she used, but no, there, there is a qualifier that should should go in front of it. So it wasn't her. It wasn't, that wasn't how she described it. It's a tower test pilot described it. She was just relating the tale. <laughs> so you must have interviewed a fair few, um, as you've already mentioned, of the pilots that flew this remarkable aircraft during the war. Um, what sort of commonalities in their views sort of come out of those interviews of flying the Spitfire and how they how they could handle it, etc. How it handled and performed. I think um, I think all of them felt that it, it was special. Um, I found uh, Tom Neal was quite hard on it. Um, uh, I think because he wants to see. Try, he, I, I always felt like he was trying to look beyond his reputation, and so he said, "You know, in the Battle of Britain, it certainly wasn't better than the 109, but they probably were about equal." Um, uh, of course, he flew Hurricanes in the Battle of Britain, and, and he said, "Because in fact, when they, when he was first posted to uh, 249 Squadron." Um, uh, they were they were equipped with Spitfires, and so he got something like I can't remember how many hours exactly forty or fifty flying hours of the Spitfire, and suddenly their Spits were taken away, and they were given Hurricanes. Um, but at the time, he said the Hurricane had a really good reputation; it had done well in France, and so they were they were very pleased to get Hurricanes. They didn't think anything of it. Um, uh, but the uh, some of the other pilots, um, I mean, Paul Farns uh, is uh, is a bit a, a little touchy, perhaps on on the Spitfire versus Hurricane, because again, he flew Hurricanes in the Battle of Britain, and he always felt it's been overlooked in favour of its you know, better-looking cousin. Um, uh, but as he says, you know, I don't do the Spitfire down at all. It was a wonderful aircraft, because like all the pilots, uh, or almost all the pilots, they, they ended up flying Spitfires because the Hurricane was phased out. Um, and in fact, the only there was one pilot who we interviewed um, uh, a chap called Ron Pottinger who flew for number three squadron and he never flew Spitfire and he it's one of those things he kind of ruse to this day uh, he flew Hurricanes in training and then went on to Typhoons and Tempests so he never flew a Spitfire um, and we interviewed him as, as a sort of test because he's, he's an old friend of my dad's and um, uh, in, in the end he said some lovely things we never managed he's another person we didn't manage to get into the film because you know our, our narrative is very much Spitfire-driven rather than the other aircraft. Um, but no, I, I think pretty universal is they, they all felt that it was uh, it was a wonderful machine. It had its vices, mostly that, that long nose on taxiing and takeoff. But, you know, once in the air, 
it was it was actually surprisingly easy to fly. It talked to you as an aircraft because that, that, that extraordinary wing shape and then the wing root, which is what, what a lot of people don't know about, uh, it softened the, um, the, the stall characteristics. And so um, it became very apparent that um, uh, when you were on the edge of a stall, the aircraft would, 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 would wobble in a certain way. And unlike other aircraft, which just suddenly snap away and stall, the Spitfire talked to you, so it told you when you were really, really pushing it to the limit, which gave you a huge advantage in combat. Um, so, uh, no, I, th I think there's a great, I think, fondness for it, um, affection, uh, uh, but also awareness that it was just a supremely good fighting machine. What was squadron leader Jeffrey Wellham's take on the Spitfire and how you've touched on the Messerschmitt 109? How did it compare? I think uh, he, well, one of the things he said was, if I could see my adversary, I knew I could outfly him in a Spitfire. And he said, uh, that sounds a bit boastful, but it, it's not. And, and this is one of the things about air combat is that, uh, you know, the, the person who sees the enemy first is generally the person who, uh, who wins the fight. Um, he felt that he could outfly the, the 109. Um, but, but so much of this actually boils down, because these air aircraft are actually all very, performance-wise, very similar. Hurricane, perhaps slightly inferior, but the Spitfire and the 109 uh, were very much on a par, and you know, each one had certain advantages, like the 109 had the advantage of fuel injection, had the advantage of cannon. Uh, but the Spit had the advantage of superior maneuverability. Uh, and... and uh, and, and the thing it really boils down to is pilot skills, um, and you know you you can see that right throughout the the, the battle and then the, and then the the later war. Um, if if you were a, a pilot who could who could see the enemy, um, uh, you you could get a, an advantageous position. You know, generally always up some up some. Uh, then uh, it, it will put you in a good position to win the fight. And, and you always have to remember that. Um, you know, dogfighting was, as, as, as Tom Neal says, that's a World War One thing. Dogfighting was not how most combats were fought and won in the Second World War. It was mostly uh, sort of a rather unsporting uh, uh, dive down at speed and, and uh, clobber the enemy and get out as fast as you could without trying to engage in any dogfighting. Because once you got into a turning fight, then it became sort of dangerous because somebody else could get on your tail. So um, I, I would say that... Um, uh, yeah, that Jeffrey's feeling about the Spitfire was that uh, if if you, you if it was in the hands of a, a, a competent, good pilot, then you could easily outfly the enemy. But the Germans probably felt the same about their aircraft as well. We've already touched on it, um, and it's one of those debates that I imagine will constantly raise its head uh, through the years to come. Um, the Hawker Hurricane and the Spitfire. Yeah. Uh, that comparison and you know the roles they played not just in the Battle of Britain but the war as a whole. Why do you think it's overshadowed generally by its illustrious sister? And what's your take on the whole the whole thing? Well, uh, it, it's it's really interesting. When we started off with the film, um, uh, as I say, and my co-director wasn't that uh, knowledgeable about aviation. He is now, I can tell you. <laughs> but. Um, but I, I, obviously he'd heard of the hurricane, uh, and I said, look, we, we need to uh, think seriously about how we deal with this, because there's a lot of passion out there in the, in the sort of aviation community and the aviation enthusiasts about, about the hurricane and about the fact that it gets overlooked. But the reality is it, it, it's overlooked for a reason, 
and 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 that reason is because it, it didn't have the longevity that Spitfire had, so it wasn't in the public eye such a long time. And also, at, even at the time, there was talk about the Spitfire over the over the hurricane because the Spitfire had glamour. It had come from a racing heritage. I mean, it doesn't share any single component with the you know, the Schneider Trophy seaplanes, the S six S six B. Um, but it, it shares a concept, and that is a you know, very powerful engine in a metal airframe, metal skinned airframe, uh, that, that goes as fast as it possibly can. Um, whereas the Hurricane had, had the, its evolution came from the biplane fighters made by Hawker in the 1920s and 30s, and so its, its lineage was, was, was different. And there are people who describe the Hurricane as a monoplane fury. Now, it's probably related because the, the construction of the aircraft is very similar, but it was a completely new design. Uh, but it was that's what its lineage was. So the Hurricane couldn't be developed any further. But when these two aircraft were, were being built and commissioned, and they were only you know, six months apart uh, uh, in, in terms of their first flights, um, uh, you know, they, 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 they were different. But the Air Ministry desperately needed fighters, so it ordered both types. And thank God it did. Because as aircraft, they were extremely complementary, um, and you know, the so the Spitfire didn't see air combat during the Battle of France, except, or certainly not flying from from French airfields uh, in combat roles. There was a reconnaissance uh, squadron, I believe, but um, come Dunkirk, the Spits started flying from uh, uh, you know airfields in Britain over and flying patrols over the beaches. But the Hurricanes have been operating from rough airfields in 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 France and had been you know, quite effective, although losses have been high. Um, and so in the Battle of Britain, you had a situation where uh, not enough Spitfires really were coming out of the factories because they were, they were much, uh, took much longer to manufacture. And more squadrons were equipped with Hurricanes. And so just by that very nature, they're going to shoot down more uh, enemy aircraft. Uh, but it was this complementary nature of the way that they were uh, then used with, um, in an ideal situation, Spitfires would engage the escort uh, because they, they they could fly effectively at high altitude, uh, and the Hurricanes, which were a more rugged uh, gun platform, could then uh, uh, you know, engage the enemy bombers. And after all, it was the enemy bom- bombers were the t- were the target. Those bombers had to be stopped getting through to their to, to you know, what they were going to bomb, which was basically eleven group um, airfields. And and so. Uh, this is why they they are they should be regarded as complementary. And one of the things in the film really is is that we've got as many Hurricane pilots uh, who are interviewed in the film as Spitfire pilots, and we're never pretending that they were flying Spitfires. We always illustrate their stories with shots of Hurricanes and what have you. And the Hurricane is not certainly not missing from the film, but we just don't tell its story because you only have so much time in you know, ninety minutes, hundred minutes. Um, but the uh, but the two aircraft worked. Uh, alongside one another, they were. You know, I've always described them as stable mates, and that, that's that's what they were. And I certainly don't want to dismiss any contribution of the, of the hurricane. You know, it played an absolutely vital role. But by the end of the battle, it's uh, you know the Spitfire had, had performed so well, and I think a decision had been made uh, somewhere within the air ministry, I guess, to concentrate us, concert, uh, production on Spitfires and not on Hurricanes. And although you know, Hurricanes still were being made up till 1944. Um, concentration was really on Spitfire production after after that stage, um, uh, but you know the Hurricane still played a, a vital, a, you know, a valuable role afterwards. But the trouble was it was being outclassed by the enemy. Um, you know the 109F when that came in could fly rings around the Hurricane, 
and then the 190 was even more so flew rings around Spitfire. Um, so the, the uh, it was the development of the aircraft was was probably the the, the the death knell of the Hurricane. The fact that it couldn't be developed any further. Um, that's my opinion. Anyway. <laughs> we talked about uh, the importance of the publicity given to the Spitfire in its you know in its eventual what it became to symbolise and how well known it became. Mm. Um, during the wartime, what were the contributions made by the general British public to the Spitfire story? Well, um, the uh, aircraft production was managed by um, uh, Lord Beaverbrook, who was a, a newspaper, a Canadian newspaper magnate. And he was brought in specially by Churchill to shake up aircraft production because there was a sense that they were still working to pre-war schedules, etc., etc. And Beaverbrook was a, a, a pugnacious character, much in sort of Churchill's mould. And he basically kicked uh, the, the uh, aircraft factories on the backside and told them they had to reorganise and get on with stuff. And he bypassed the air ministry in some respects. So the Ministry of Aircraft Production talked directly to the factories. And so he took, he took the politicians out of the loop to some degree. Um, and one of the ideas they came up with was uh, uh, a way in which the public could get involved in sponsoring uh, aircraft. And these became known as Spitfire funds. Uh, they weren't known as Hurricane funds or any other aircraft type of funds. They were called Spitfire funds. And I think that's another way in which uh, the aircraft uh, yeah, became so... Uh, uh, it, it was adopted by the public um, because it was such an obvious way in which they could help the war effort. And there were all these schemes whereby aluminium pots were collected and melted down, which are supposedly going to be put into aircraft, you know, made into aircraft. Well, that was really just a, a sort of uh, a PR stunt because the aluminium wasn't of the correct grade to be turned into, you know, aircraft uh, duralumin uh, or anything like that. And so um, those Spitfire funds uh, just became a way for people to feel like they were con contributing to specifically to the war effort. And people would, you know, bake cakes, they would make jam, they would hold exhibitions, there any number of, you know, sponsorship things that you can think of that kids still do today when they're trying to raise money for something. Uh, that was being done back in the war. And countries got involved as well. So um, uh, there, was, there was Spitfire sponsored by, you know, West African countries. There was Spitfire sponsored by the Uruguayan Railways. Um, so it caught uh, attention of people worldwide, interestingly. And, uh, and and it just became a uh, and there was also a price decided. I think it was thousand pounds per Spitfire, and if you raised a thousand pounds, that was your Spitfire. I think the actual cost of one was a bit a little bit more than that. But again, it was a handy figure that everyone could remember um, that that, uh, uh, that so people felt that they were making this contribution. Um, so no, again, it's part of this sort of people's airplane thing. And then another thing, of course, was that when um, the there were two main factories, Southampton and uh, Castle Bromwich in um, uh, Birmingham. And the Castle Bromwich was never bombed, bizarrely, but uh, uh, Wollstone in, in Southampton was, and it was put out of action. And very quickly, uh, there had been plans put into place already. The production was dispersed throughout the city of Southampton and then throughout the whole of the, you know, the, the, the south and west of, of England. So bus garages, you know, small workshops, laundries, anywhere which had a bit of space in them and power uh, could be converted into a small sort of assembly shop. And so Spitfires were put together uh, uh, and, you know, parts of them manufactured uh, in, in all these small towns throughout the uh, throughout uh, uh, Britain, well, throughout the UK. And um, 
Uh, and that, again, I think plays into this whole thing about why people feel this close connection with the Spitfire, because it's almost like it became the people's um, aeroplane. This must have been a fantastic project to work on. Um, what's been your personal highlight during filming all of this? Personal highlight? Um, I've loved, obviously, every minute of, um, of, of time I've spent uh, with with Spitfires on airfields, you know, breathing in the exhaust fumes, um, being able to you know, stand at such close quarters without a fence of 100 people in front of me, uh, which is the experience at an air show. So that's been a, you know, a real privilege to hang out with some of the pilots and to uh, chat with them. Uh, meeting the veterans has been a huge, huge privilege. And uh, you know, I feel so blessed that I've been able to to listen to some of their stories. You know, for the, perhaps the last time they told them, we interviewed the last surviving um, Polish squadron commander, Francis Czech Kornitsky. And at the end of the interview, uh, and he was another uh, chap with a really steely core. You could see why he would be he'd been a squadron commander. At the end of the interview, um, he said, "Right, that's it. That's the last interview I'm ever giving." And so we felt like we'd heard his last public words, and that that was. An incredible honour, um, and then there's the experience of teamwork of, of working, you know, within a team of, of people we've put together. I mean, it is a passion project, but it's a, you know, it, it's now it's a, it's, it's been a properly funded film. Um, yeah, we've got a release; it's out there. People are going to see it. So all those things are just incredibly exciting and make me very proud of, of this this idea that started outside a pub and here it is about to be it's released next week so you know it's multiple layers of, of things that have been uh, highlights rather than just one well david it's been an absolutely incredible interview and i've enjoyed every minute um why don't you tell us about when the film's out and how people essentially can go to the cinema where they can find that information and when they can see it um the uh, uh the the place to go to find out find out where the film is on is uh, our website, which is www.spitfire.film, and that will uh, that tells you what's in at cinemas it's on at, um, and uh, uh, and how you can buy your tickets, which you can buy online. Um, so that's the, for the one night only event, which is on the, the next Tuesday night, seventeenth of July. Um, beyond that, uh, the film will then have a so that's in two hundred and forty cinemas, I think. Beyond that, the film will have a limited release in uh, a much smaller number of cinemas. So people have missed that might get a chance to see it, but they'll have to travel much further, perhaps, to to get to see it. Um, and at the same time, it will be released on iTunes, and I believe it's on Virgin and a number of other um, channels. Uh, and then uh, in September, DVD, Blu-ray, um, and then who knows beyond that? So. Uh, that, that's how people can see it, and I just urge everyone to, uh, you know, to go and see this on the big screen because that's what we made it for, and it's got uh, uh, visuals and a soundtrack that will rival any um, Avengers movie, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, I for one will definitely be going and seeing it, and I, I can't wait. Um, I just want to say, obviously, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Not and more importantly, thank you for obviously having that conversation in the pub and doing that yeah. project. Um, yeah, amazing things can happen over a pint of beer. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode on the World's Nation podcast uh, and you look forward to seeing the new film documentary out next week in cinemas near you. 
Coming up next time on the World's Nation podcast, we'll be speaking with Battlefield Guide Mike Peters about the campaign in Sicily during the Second World War.